What does self-care look like when life does not go the way that you expected? Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy. This is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh-Cedar, and I'm very happy to have with me today Bree Perquet, licensed clinical social worker, and she's here to talk about her experience working with individuals in the grief process. Welcome to the show, Bree. Would you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and the work that you do in grief? Sure. And Anna, thank you so much for having me. I think this is a very important and very under-discussed topic. Um, Before I was a therapist in private practice, I worked as an acute care social worker in a few different hospital settings where much of our work was around grief and loss uh, and adjustment to illness as well. But we did see a fair amount of trauma and grief and loss. And so through that work, um, it became a clinical interest to be working with people who were experiencing various types of grief. And when you, let's unpack that word grief a little bit, because that seems like a really big concept. And you already, just in that little intro about some of your experience, mentioned that people can experience grief in a number of different situations. So I think most traditionally we think of grief when someone has died but you even give the example of adjustment to illness. Can you talk a little bit about that word grief and what that actually means? Sure. And you're absolutely right that when we talk about grief, the first thing that most of us think about is death and dying. Um, And that's probably one of the most common types, but we really have grief in many different places. We might be thinking about pet loss, which is a really significant form of grief that isn't talked about very much. Um, we have traumatic material loss, which is a you know opportune time to talk about that, given the fires that are happening in Northern California right now, not far from where we are. Um, we also have loss of a life that once was, and that you might see in the loss of relationships, job loss, um, divorces, different things like that. So really, any time that there is some kind of loss, you can have a grief. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to name and describe because I find as a therapist, when people often come through my doors, they're saying things to me like, I don't know why this feels like such a big deal. Other people have moved on and I haven't. And sometimes we really have to put more words to what was actually lost. Do you find that to be true that some people will come to you and they're initially talking about a grief or a loss, but then you have to define a little bit further with them what was lost, you know, say a certain kind of childhood that they wish they could have had, or perhaps the opportunity to say something to a loved one that was lost. What has your experience been with that? Oh, for sure. And grief is so incredibly complicated. And unfortunately, I think in modern American society, we don't do very well at addressing the negative emotions that often comes with grief. Um, I think most of us can remember a time where we were told as children that if somebody asked us how we were doing, the acceptable responses ranged from I'm doing well to I'm doing fantastic. Mm -hmm. And if you said something like, oh, I'm really sad or I don't feel good, you were told you were being rude. So that's just an example of part of the way that our American culture doesn't acknowledge some of these negative feelings. And grief is complex and everybody's experience with it is very, very different. 
So somebody may lose a grandparent, for example, to death, and one person might be able to process that as um, it's okay, they had a good life, they were, you know, maybe over 100 years old, where somebody else might experience the death of a grandparent who perhaps raised them, and it's a much closer relationship. So the grief takes a different form. Isn't that often the case that when you talk about someone coming to terms with their own grief, a lot of times it is very present focused and actually wrapped up in the relationships with the other survivors. So you talk about how, you know, in multi-generational families, it might be very typical to process grief in one way. And then another person, it might present a totally different way. What has your experience been working with family members as they have had to negotiate that in terms of how they express or sometimes it feels like a performance as they perform their their grief in in the larger community well it's been interesting both as a social worker in a medical setting as an individual therapist and just experiencing grief personally um, the very differing ways that people experience it and talk about it and something that I hear often is that people will avoid talking about it because they think it makes others feel uncomfortable and to an extent it probably does it's an uncomfortable topic it can be you know difficult and sad to see other people expressing expressing um, difficult emotions. But something that's so important is that those people aren't looking for it to be fixed. They're mm-hmm. not looking for someone to say, I understand, because the fact of the matter is they don't understand that specific person's grief, even if they've experienced a similar loss. They're looking for somebody to say, I hear you, I see you, and I know that this loss matters for you. And I'm wondering how have you helped those folks integrate what they're learning in therapy about processing that grief back home in their communities and families? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There's a couple of different models that I think most of us are familiar with for grief processing. The most common one that we all learned in social work school was the five stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And just for people who may not be familiar those are denial, which is the this can't be happening, the belief that life no longer makes sense, and almost like a depersonalization of what has happened. There's anger, um, where you might be saying, why me? Life is so fair, uh, so unfair. You might be wondering if you're a spiritual person, why God would do this to you and your family. Um, there's also bargaining. An example of that is, you know, please, God, if you can make my husband better, I promise to live a certain way of life for the rest of my life. Um, depression, which is that emptiness, that hopelessness you feel when you realize that somebody that you care about or something that you cared about is gone forever. And then finally, acceptance, where you might say, I'm going to be okay, even though this change has happened. And there's a very common misconception that Kubler-Ross intended these stages to be linear, and they, they're they not. But what has happened, I think, and what I've experienced with, with clients and patients that I've worked with in the past is that they really grapple with trying to understand how can I be at acceptance if I haven't been angry and mm-hmm. I'm not angry. Mm-hmm. And so that model tends to be a little bit more difficult for people, I think, because it feels very linear, even though that has that wasn't the intention to begin with. 
What do you tell people when you explain that model to them about that to help them understand what might feel useful to them? And is it a kind of a permission giving that you give them to um, take the parts that feel most relevant to them? Or is there anything else that you um, try to help them understand when you share some of these tools around grief? So there's actually a model that I prefer and that I use with my clients um, called the dual process grief model. And that was developed by Margaret Strobe and Hank Schutt in 1999. They presented this paper actually as a direct criticism of some of the traditional frameworks and this idea that grief is a linear process. The idea behind the dual process grief model is that we do what we call restoration oriented activities and loss oriented activities. Mm. And the skill is not being just in restoration or just in loss. It's the idea of being able to flexibly go back and forth between the two. So, for example, when you're in loss oriented, that's where you might feel your denial, your anger, the bargaining, all of those things that come with the stages of grief from Kubler-Ross. That's where we have funerals. We might be in a period of mourning. Some cultures have official periods of mourning. And then restoration oriented activities are the parts where that's where acceptance comes in. And you might be able to say, okay, I can do this. I can move forward. You might be rebuilding your life. In cases of material loss, you might be rebuilding a house. You might be you know, rebuilding some other kind of infrastructure and supports. And the idea is that you're not going to go from loss and then stay in restoration. You're going to have periods of time where you go back and forth. Hmm. I really like that way of thinking about grief. And for listeners of the podcast who are following along and interested in dialectical behavior therapy, which we've talked a lot about on the show, that includes a core dialectic. Uh, and basically a dialectic is is just saying that two seemingly opposite truths can exist at the same time. And with dialectical behavior therapy, the, the core dialectic that we're balancing is that sometimes in life you do need to change situations for the better and use problem solving skills. And there are other occasions where you actually have to sit in acceptance. And so when you talk about that dialectic of restoration um, and change versus um, really sitting with the loss that you're confronting, that resonates with me when I think about the dialectics that we have to balance in life more broadly. And doesn't it make sense that the dialectics would show up in grief? because you're balancing a lot of different complicated feelings at once. For sure. And something that I also really appreciate this model is that it, without necessarily saying so, eliminates the idea of a timeline for mm. grief. Mm. And it really encompasses the idea that you might be in one area now, but later, you know, down the road, you could go back to the other and you're not striving to get to the next level, so to speak. You're understanding how to navigate these two very important pieces. And there's actually fewer of them to think about mm -hmm. when you, when you think of it as a dual process, because all the other things fall into either restoration or loss oriented. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> Again, your goal is not necessarily to get to one and not stay in the other. It's mm -hmm. the ability to understand that you'll go back and forth mm -hmm. and that grief is not something that you overcome or um, 
well, you can recover from it in the sense that you learn how to go back and forth more effectively. But this is something grief stays with you. Mm-hmm. You know, grief often comes with trauma. You know, the intersection of grief and trauma is significant as well. And so one of the things I talk about with clients is the idea that you can coexist with grief. Mm-hmm. You're not going to beat it necessarily, but you can still be grieving the loss of something, you know, kind of getting back to your dialectic while you're moving forward with your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And it's that very balance. That's the thing that you're you're doing. I like that. It almost, uh, it gives you a new focus, doesn't it? Well, I'm, the name's escaping me now who um, came up with the another model of grief that I find really useful when I'm working with clients. It's the four tasks of grief. And I really like that one. I think it overlaps a lot with this dual model that you're talking about. And it agrees um, and says that grief is a very active process rather than the Uh, some of the stages of grief that you might flow through this model of the four tasks of grief makes grieving a very active process. And so it encourages you to think about, you know, your responsibilities as you manage that grief. So let me see if I can remember all four in order. So number one is to accept the reality of the loss. So we're seeing that acceptance is showing up all over the place. And We are talking about reality acceptance here, not I like it, I approve of it, I'm happy it happened this way. We're just talking about what is the reality here, okay? Number two is processing the pain of the loss. So not only did it happen, but here's exactly how it was painful. And we talk about that notion of grief. That's going to contain a lot of the um, experiences and, and things that we didn't have a chance to to have. Number three, our third job with grief is to accept the reality of this world without that person in it. So this is that old saying, life life goes on uh, and we have to come to terms with that. And number four is maintaining a connection with the person who was lost. So this is, it's a combo. Uh, You're going to do tasks one, two, and three, but you're also going to make room in your life for that, um, that your connection with that person to go on. Or when we talk about non-death losses and grief, sometimes it's maintaining a connection to a, a hope or an idea. So we could talk about uh, relationship grief or breakup. I've seen a lot of people go through divorces Um, and try to figure out what their worldview is going to be after the fact. Sometimes they're tempted to think something along the lines of, well, you know, there's no one out there for me and I may as well not trust anyone. For them, that last task of grief might be reinvigorating hope of finding someone to trust again and to even fall in love with. It's not saying it'll happen right away, but you are maintaining a connection with yourself uh, that was exercised through that relationship. Have you ever used that model before or um, some of those ideas? Indirectly, mm-hmm. um, you know, because again, I think that the, the dual process model that I tend to lean towards encompasses a lot of uh-huh. those. But what's really interesting also with some of the 
idea of acceptance is, again, like you said, you're not saying that this is okay and that you agree with what has happened or that you are fond of what has happened. It's merely saying that you acknowledge that it did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a cognitive behavioral standpoint, one of the things that we often do using your example is um, maybe the automatic thought of, I'm never going to fall in love again. Nobody will ever want to be with me. That is something as therapists that is a little bit more tangible that we can work on with clients Mm -hmm. is sort of unpacking some of those negative automatic thoughts that, as we know, influence um, behavior and emotion. Mm -hmm. And this is where we can draw from the age-old art of storytelling, right? So that whole theory behind cognitive behavioral therapy says that the way we feel um, is based on how we think about a certain situation. So you can, in fact, train your brain to make sense and make meaning even of a painful loss. And this is where we might look to cultural narratives um, I've heard you know people talk about what it means to have a quote unquote good death. And you, as a survivor of someone who's died, you might choose to focus on those parts of um, what that person did have or how they found comfort. Or in the case of painful losses, you might choose to focus on the memories that are um, most comforting and soothing from from the past. And that's interesting to think about. Um, the narratives that folks bring when they when they think about grief. And when, oftentimes when I'm starting a grief work with people, you know, one of the first things I want to acknowledge is that there are no platitudes that are going to make the person feel better. Mm-hmm. It's also important that we remember that it usually when somebody experiences some kind of loss, they do want to talk about it. When it's in the context of a loved one that they have lost to death, one of the biggest fears most people have is that that person's going to be forgotten. And one of the things that really comes up for me, and this is when we're talking about infant and um, pregnancy loss, one of the fears that expectant parents often have is that nobody's going to remember their child. And it's incredibly important that we remember that when talking to folks, not only is us talking to them about it, not going to quote unquote, remind them of the pain. They will Mm -hmm. never forget the pain, Mm -hmm. but it's also acknowledging that their child existed and that their child mattered and that their child isn't going to be forgotten. And that's a topic that's extremely difficult in our culture because it's something that most people are so afraid of that they really would rather not broach the topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. And so when we go back to that, relationship frame and and remember the fact that, you know, we are as human beings, we're herd animals and we feel comforted in groups of people, especially during times of pain and loss. And of course, there's going to be a balance there between things that you do on your own for self-care and things that you do as part of relationship care with grief. What advice would you give to people who are looking for a way to process their grief and pain, um, knowing that loved ones may have the best intentions, um, but might not always know what to say or how to be supportive. How do you coach uh, individuals who are going through a grief to help them get the support that they need from loved ones? What do you encourage them to say or do or ask that helps them get their needs met in relationship to others? 
Well, something I think is really important, really in any kind of crisis, is that your first job, you know, first and foremost, is to survive. And in order to survive any kind of crisis, we need to be attending to our basic needs. So that's food, shelter, lodging, hydration, all of those things to keep us actually living. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're dealing with a significant loss, and that could be the termination from a job, from a lifelong career, Mm -hmm. we could be talking about retirement, we could be talking about kids moving out of the house. One of the hardest things to do is to just put one step in front of the other and move forward or even move sideways. Mm -hmm. So addressing those basic needs first and thinking, if I do nothing else today besides eat and drink and breathe, I've been successful Mm -hmm. because each day that you do that, other things will eventually follow. Mm -hmm. So that's the first and I think the most important thing. And let's just say folks may even want to put reminders in their phone to eat or Uh, Maybe even tell other people, uh, it's okay if you ask me if I've eaten or bring me a plate of food, because we say that as if that's a really simple and obvious thing. And yet, during a grief, a lot of those basics go right out the window. I think another thing with that that's also really important is that it is okay that you're not okay. And it is okay for your family members and friends to address you in such a way and to to say to you, it is okay that you're not okay. We don't expect you to be right now. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, how not okay somebody is may vary depending on how difficult the loss was. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about there's been a few uh, recent situations in the media that I've seen of young people losing a spouse to traumatic accidents. And the idea of being widowed in your 30s is absolutely absurd. You know, mm-hmm. nobody is prepared for that. Mm-hmm. That is a very different kind of grief than perhaps a different kind of loss. That's what we call an out-of-order life event, right? Maybe you knew it would be coming someday. You just didn't know it was going to happen in this decade. And something else with that, there's this idea of disenfranchised grief. And those are the losses that, for one reason or another, don't necessarily feel widely uh accepted by society. Mm. A really good example of this that I can think of in our modern culture is how most companies will give us three to five bereavement days Mm -hmm. off of work. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are somebody who just lost their spouse, you're not going to be ready to return to work in five days. Mm -hmm. If you've lost a pet, there's a very good chance five days is not going to be enough. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll often do is hold things in and try to pretend that we're okay and try to move forward and function in a, in a society that hasn't accepted that these are quote unquote real losses. Mm -hmm. And there's cultural factors, you know, that play into that. Mm -hmm. I've worked with cultures where pets are not considered part of the family. And so they don't breathe pets the same way other cultures do. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are some examples of sort of the disenfranchised grief. Mm -hmm. Now I think we can also, unintentionally make a grief disenfranchised by how we respond to somebody else's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would you, what would you say to people who are trying to be supportive to someone during their grief? What could they say uh, to leave space for whatever experience that person is having? For those folks, I would say, you know, there's no expectation at all to understand There's nothing that is going to fix it. There's nothing that will make it better for the person other than knowing that they're not alone. 
and that whatever it is that has happened to them is normal. You know, grief is one of the emotions in life that every single one of us at one point or another are going to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to say, I hear you. I, I don't, you know, I don't blame you for how you're feeling right now, but understanding is very different Mm -hmm. and you don't have to say you understand. And I do think that's why some people avoid the topic Uh because they don't want to tell the person I don't understand. Uh That can even be triggering Kianta for people to hear. I know where you're going through. I understand. Even if that person has been through a loss of their own grief is really like an individual snowflake. Each one is totally different and unique to that relationship. For sure. And this is something that I've, I've had many people tell me is one of the hardest things that they've had to deal with is either telling someone well, actually this is not the same thing. And in, in mm-hmm. cases of some more um, rare types of losses, I think you see that a little bit more, you know, trauma, uh, traumatic events, things that don't happen very often. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. hear that a little bit more. And just the idea that, well, and I think thinking of us as clinicians to understanding that we have to kind of keep our own experience with grief in check. Mm-hmm. and understand what somebody else's grief may bring to us. Mm-hmm. For example, if you are a therapist that has dealt with a specific kind of loss, even recently, mm-hmm. hearing that from a client may trigger emotions in you. Mm-hmm. And we want to avoid a situation where a client is trying to console us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to. And that's true, I would say, for family members, too, that Oftentimes for the person going through a grief, it's it's hard for them to open up and be really vulnerable for fear that then the person they're talking to is going to break down and, and they will have to take care of them. And actually, one of the questions that I ask when I'm working with someone who's going through a grief, and I use this question in my personal life as well, uh, just to signal to the other person, you know, if I'm here and, and available to be supportive, just to signal to them, yeah, it's okay, I I can handle this, I can hear about it, I'll ask them, you know, what's the most painful part of this grief for you? What's the absolute worst part of it? It's kind of going back to that idea of it's okay to not be okay. And in fact, I do want to hear about the most painful part of it. A lot of times what comes out of that is really surprising. So, you know, there might be the loss of a specific person But sometimes the most painful part of it is, you know, I never got a chance to say this important thing that I wanted to say to them, or that person will never get to see me become a parent. That is actually the most painful part of it. So there are ways that when we're talking to someone and supporting someone through a grief that we can actually signal to them, look, it's okay, we can can actually have this conversation. And, and, you know, piggybacking on that as well, you know, we we don't know how each of us are going to respond to certain losses until they happen. And you may be talking with someone who is experiencing anger and may react to things that are, you know, very well intentioned. Examples of that, that that come up that I hear from clients are when somebody tells me this person's in a better place or I'm better off mm. or... Um, it wouldn't have worked out anyway. You know, mm-hmm. things that are intended to be helpful are actually extremely painful. Mm-hmm. And many people will say that they just want to feel heard mm-hmm. and to know that people are going to be there. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And this is where we can 
um, even in times of grief, we can get really assertive and ask for the things that we need or want. So um, people will be triggered by different things during a grief, but I would just encourage listeners to think about, you know, if there's something that you really need or do not need to hear, just know that it's okay to tell the people around you and know that they will even be comforted if you give them a little cheat sheet of how to support you. So it's, it's not uncommon, you know, I have clients say the same thing. Um, maybe someone is trying to say something comforting to them. They might say something, it's very common to say, uh, this happened for a reason or it was part of God's plan. You know, not everyone necessarily feels that way and they might have a really uh, strong reaction to that. So as a survivor going through grief, just know that um, people want to help you, but they don't always know how. So it's okay to tell them, hey, you know what? I want to just kind of talk about the person that was lost for 10 minutes. Do you mind just sitting and listening to me while I just go on and on? That would feel so great. Or actually, I just want to sit and be alone with my thoughts and I don't want to talk to anybody. So could you kind of check back with me in two days? It's okay to be really specific with the people around us of how they can support us. And with those people around us too, if, if somebody hasn't come to you and said, I need X, Y, or Z, it's okay to say, you know what, has anybody, is anybody making dinner for you for the mm -hmm. next couple of days? Mm -hmm. Can I have something sent or can I make something to bring to you? Mm -hmm. And offerings of things that kind of contribute to that, that really immediate self-care can be really helpful. Um, do you want me to sit with you while you have dinner? We can have mm -hmm. dinner together. Mm -hmm. Things like that, those offerings of support that aren't you trying to say that you understand where a person is at more that you empathize with it can mm -hmm. be really, really helpful. I also love that all of those examples that you point out are really specific offers of support. You, you take some of the guesswork out of it by offering your specific superpower. And that is such a support to someone who is overwhelmed and perhaps even having to make funeral plans to not have to think or even anticipate one of those needs is, is such a gift. So I, I think that's really great. You don't have to give exactly the same gift that somebody else does. You can give your, your specific superpower. I think that's great. Yeah. And one of the things that we're conditioned to say, you know, in our society is if you need anything, let me know. And people don't know what they need if they suddenly lose a job that they've had for 30 years, mm -hmm. or if they lose a child, or mm -hmm. if they lose a sibling, mm -hmm. or have a house fire and mm -hmm. have lost all of their belongings. They aren't going to know what they need. And so kind of going back to the job at that point is to just survive each day, food, shelter, water, you know, basic needs, connection with 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 people that they love and care about are mm -hmm. often some of the most important things early on. I think that's right. People don't know how to name that need. And we can also offer gentle choices, right? So I'm going to go pick up some food. Do you want me to just drop it at your door? Or do you want me to hang out and do dishes for 20 minutes? Because I could go either way. 
Um, when we say, oh, is there anything I can do? We still put the other person in the position of having to ask for help, which is probably the last thing, the last skill they want to practice when they are so overwhelmed by, by reality in that moment. The other thing I'll just add to that, probably you've seen this as well, but um, oftentimes right after a loss, there's an immediate outpouring of support. Um, and it's really good to keep in mind, maybe just put on your uh, Google Calendar or set a little reminder to check in more with that person, maybe six weeks out after um, a lot of that initial hubbub because interest starts to wane and people go back to their everyday lives. And not everyone does have that familiarity with grief to know that grief shows up in the day-to-day um, and not in just the immediate aftermath. And that may be something that continues for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think grief, much like, like in, uh, anxiety and depression, can go into remission. And years later, you know, somebody, mm-hmm. quote unquote, is over it, so to speak, or might seem like they've reached a point where it's not bothering them on a day-to-day basis, but then have something happen or an anniversary or a birthday or something mm-hmm. passes, and they really have a hard time. And so keeping that in mind also can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And something that will help do that is to continue to talk about it. Mm -hmm. If somebody has lost a a person close to them or a child or somebody in their life that's really important, talking about it is going to help the people around them know where they're at on a particular day. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that, Bree. So you really... Um, woven into this conversation a lot of things that individuals and family members can do to take care of themselves uh, during a grief or a loss. Before we end for today, is there anything else that you wish people understood about grief and the grief process or things that they should do or consider to take care of themselves after a loss? For sure. I think there's a couple of different things. In the age of social media, I think we are so fortunate because it's able to connect people with similar experiences. You know, thinking about the idea of widowhood at a young age, there used to be a time if you were in your 30s and lost a spouse, you didn't know anybody else that had ever been through that. But there are social media groups and there's, there's ways to connect with people who have had this shared experience. And there are times that I think that sometimes that's the only thing that's going to be helpful is being able to talk to somebody who has lived this exact same grief path that you are living. And that also doesn't mean that the other people in your life aren't helpful. And for those friends and family members, it doesn't mean that you're failing just because you can't offer the same level of support. I think that both of these things are extremely important for a person to have. Mm The other thing that I think can be helpful is to talk to a therapist. Um, sometimes that that grief processing might just be processing and telling a story. You know, you might feel like you're being a burden to others. You're not. But it can be very helpful to be talking to somebody outside of your immediate circle and to be able to sit and tell a story. That's actually something I do encourage clients to do when I talk to them. Tell me a story about your loved one. Tell me about something that made you laugh. You know, and we, we will actually continuously talk about the person's life and their existence as a way to make it known that you know we remember this person existed and, li- and lived a life. The way you explain that 
um, really resonates with me. And you and I have had this conversation off mic before of what a privilege it is to be able to do grief work, because in a lot of ways, it looks totally different than other forms of therapy, because it turns out that we as human beings have a natural kind of course correct and self-soothing mechanism that happens after grief. We, in our families, and our cultures, have a lot of practices that teach us how to deal with grief, but you do have to spend the time sitting in that space to be able to access that, that natural intuition that we all have. So a lot of times the therapy process, is, it's one of um, inquiry and storytelling and asking about and thinking about um, it's it's really drawing upon those those natural instincts that we have to recuperate after a loss. So I really like the way that you you describe that process. And as a therapist, something else that I I really hold on to is that it really truly is is awful as this may sound, but it's a blessing to be able to sit with someone in their moment of grief or their moments of grief. Through my career, I've had the the privilege of being with somebody at the time of their death and sitting with their family members while that's happening. And then immediately after and personal life too, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the older we get, the more likely we are to have experienced grief either ourselves or with people very close to us. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I often will do that I think is unique with, with a grief process is when I'm hearing stories about someone's loss, if there's something later on that reminds me of that, I will say to them, you know, I saw this this news article or I, I was reading this book or, you know, mm-hmm. I was outside and saw this flower and it really made me think of the person that you were talking about because they are acutely aware of the fact that other people aren't going to meet their loved one. Other people aren't going to know that they had this career or they had built this life. And I think hearing that other people still think of that is, is something that can be helpful. But what it means to me as a clinician is that I'm getting to know someone, mm-hmm. you know, and their their legacy is that they are continuing to affect people even mm-hmm. long after it's gone. That, that really sticks with me and, and reminds me when we go back to the tasks of grieving and that last task of maintaining a connection to the person who is lost and we are really reminded of how bittersweet these feelings are. So when you describe the beauty and loss, it reminds me of um, all those different emotions that are actually dialectical. They are both and. So when you talk about grief, the reason it's so painful is because it's also connected to feelings of love and affection and appreciation. Just like if you're doing a daily gratitude practice, you, you only experience gratitude when there's an awareness of what, what it feels like to not have something. Grief is the counterpart example to gratitude. And what we're looking for when we process that grief, we are also looking for moments of, of gratitude. And I think the way that we can all do that, I love the example of the flower, um, is to think about during difficult moments in our life, what would that person say to us? What would their advice be? What would their reaction be? Uh, sometimes they'd have a reaction that we might not even like, and we can just even kind of smile to ourselves, knowing that, um, that that we can hold that person in that experience, even when their physical body is, is not there. And I think it's also 
really important that it's okay to express joy. It's okay to laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, having something lost doesn't mean that suddenly the absurdity of some of their <laughs> some of your interactions or experiences is is also, you know, no longer appropriate to share. When we mm-hmm. lose someone, we can talk about things that they did that made us laugh. And laughter can also be really cathartic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I hear a lot of times people feel guilty if they feel happy or if they mm-hmm. try to do something that brings them some relief. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we would all want is to know that our loved ones or people that we care about could still do that and understand that it's not disrespecting us or forgetting mm-hmm. that we're no longer here. We're actually holding that person in in our life and in all of the different expressions of that grief. If you are looking for more self-care resources for grief and loss, you might want to check out a couple of the following resources. One that I'll mention is another really great podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. That's um, by a podcaster, Laura McNerney out of Minnesota. She's gone through some incredible, um, really awe-inspiring losses herself and shares that quite openly and has created a really amazing supportive community of listeners who have also gone through their own losses. Bree, what self-care resources would you recommend for listeners? Sure. There's a phenomenal book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand by Megan Devine. And that book is available on Amazon or wherever you purchase books from. And I do believe it's in an ebook as well. Um, another, a couple of websites I use are whatsyourgrief.com and SciCom, P-S-Y-C-O-M.net. I think those are really well-written resources and kind of devoid of any of the, the, the psycho speak that we use and written in everyday language that I think is really great and educational. And stay tuned on Medium. If you follow Brie Perquet, you will see an upcoming article coming out about grief. And you can also follow the Therapy for Real Life blog where you'll see a grief check, self-care checklist. Well, Brie Perquet, thank you so much for joining me on the Therapy for Real Life podcast. If you are interested in learning more about self-care resources or more information about therapy and grief or loss, feel free to look me up on the therapyforreallife.com website, and you will also find Bree's contact information in the show notes. Did you know that Therapy for Real Life offers burnout prevention hackathons for the workplace? I'm your host, Annalyn Briggs-Cedar, and I'm happy to announce that Therapy for Real Life now comes to your workplace to offer therapy concepts adapted into self-care strategies that you can use on the job. As you know, Therapy for Real Life is a Bay Area-based burnout prevention counseling program, but now you don't have to participate in the therapy programs to learn what happens in therapy. If you're a listener of the Therapy for Real Life podcast, you know that I'm a big advocate of teaching people the strategies that work for them to manage stress, burnout, anxiety, and depression in their lives. 
not everyone can make it to therapy. Managers and HR professionals are well aware that stress is at an all-time high in the workplace. Wouldn't you like to equip your staff with self-care strategies to help them manage stress on the job? Therapy for Real Life's burnout prevention hackathons give staff a fun and interactive way to learn research-backed self-care strategies on the job. As your facilitator, I will come in and present relaxation strategies, cognitive coping exercises, and examples of mindfulness that your staff can pick from and practice in the workshop to see what works best for them. Teacher staff and coworkers not only ways to take care of themselves on the job, but create that culture of self-care and teamwork together. Find out more about hosting a burnout prevention hackathon at your workplace by going to therapyforreallife.com and selecting the workshops page or emailing me directly at therapy at annacedar.com. That's therapy at A-N-N-A-C-E-D-A-R.com. I look forward to being in touch. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.